So we're in the series called Joy Set. We're going through the book of Philippians, a study uh, looking at Paul's letter to the church of Philippi. And this book is chocked full of truth, especially this first chapter. We've not even made it out of the first chapter yet. And here we are in week three. And it is chocked full of truth that can be applied to each and every one of us. Joy not Joey, joy is an emotion that each and every one of us long for. We need, we long to experience. When we're living a life outside or absent of joy, it can be very difficult to uh, just to see anything positive in your life. But you see, joy is more than an emotion. It's more than just feeling happy. Joy is a state of mind. So even when things do not go according to plan, life's not going the way you thought it would, or everything's not measuring the way you hoped it would, you can still have abundant joy. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, that he came to give us a rich and satisfying life, or a life overflowing, or a life more abundantly. And I truly believe that joy is at the center of that life. Joy is more than an emotion. It's a state of being. It is a mindset that is overflowing regardless of the circumstances you encounter in your life. But the problem with many of us, and something I've struggled with my whole life, is that oftentimes we don't experience joy. There are times I'm just sitting there, I'm like, man, I'm in a funk. And sometimes that funk lasts for days and days and your days, and it's just like, man, why am I not experiencing joy in my life? See, many of us, we don't have joy. We have a substitute. Last week, we called it almost joy. It's kind of joy, but it's not really the true joy that satisfies, that overflows in the life or that's supposed to overflow in the life of a believer. It's a fluttering disposition based on your circumstances and your seasons of life. So we understand what joy is supposed to be, but having that can be very difficult in our lives or identifying it. Jeff Spatafora wrote a book I just um, pretty much finished reading. It's pretty good. It's called The Joy Model. And something he discovered I thought was quite interesting. He has identified or believes he's identified really what is the cause of our joyless experience as a Christian. Why some of us live joyless experiences as a Christian life or joy-deficient Christian lives. He says in his book that, uh, that joy is discovered when you enter a sweet spot between being and doing. When you know who you are in Christ and what you're called to do and you're equally pursuing to live that out in your daily life. And he developed a chart that is, uh, looks similar to this. Um, recreated this for us. And then on this chart, you really have two axes. You have the, the doing axis. This is what I should be doing with my time, talent, uh, your temple and treasure or tribe. And then the being axis. This is who is God and who am I? And so typically we tend to follow one or two axes in life. And in this chart, you see there are four quadrants. But three of these quadrants are not ideal for the follower of Jesus Christ. They actually work against having joy in your life. The lower left-hand quadrant, uh, this is called the frustrated believer. Anybody ever feel frustrated in your faith journey? Sometimes being frustrated, I know I have. But the frustrated believer, this is the person who has kind of hit a lull in their spiritual journey or like a dead end. It seems like nothing is moving forward. Everything's kind of stalling out or getting stale. And the frustrated believer is frustrated because they don't realize there is another level 
in their spiritual journey. There's somewhere else that God wants to take them. There is another level, a deeper relationship that they can have with Jesus Christ, but they don't know that or don't recognize it or they are not pursuing it. The frustrated believers upset with where their life is, with the way things are going and, and, and maybe what's happening, but they're not doing anything to work their way out of that. They're not seeking a more spiritual believer to mentor them or come a, around them. They're not taking active steps to grow into leadership. They're, they're just sitting back. They're, they're the back row. Leave me alone. Don't ask me to do anything, believer. And then they complain about why life is miserable. Frustration works against faith, it works against hope, it works against joy. And Jeff, in his book, describes how he has found that people stay stuck here, again, because they seem to become unteachable, that there's nothing that you can show them in the Word of God that's going to make a difference. There's not a verse that you can tell them that will motivate them to change. They've stopped seeking and they've resisted growing in the Lord. They don't proactively seek anything or invest themselves in anything that would deepen their relationship with God because that would require too much effort. In the busyness of their lives, it limits their time studying the Bible and praying, getting involved in life groups or small groups, things of that nature, and investing in ways to intentionally grow. But again, on this chart, there are really two paths. There's the being and doing path. And those that maybe are frustrated and they start to feel guilty about being frustrated, they decide that, hey, you know what? I might just start trying to do more. And if I do more, maybe that will work myself out of my frustration. So they start going vertically and doing more. And the problem with doing more is when you do it absent the Holy Spirit, it is deficient. It's not sustainable. And so you go from being a frustrated believer and transform yourself into a weary worker. And they work themselves out, try to work themselves out of a spiritual slump. And the problem with the weary worker is the doing more comes from a sense of guilt and shame rather than the love and joy overflowing from their Christian life. It's a works-based kind of religious effort. And it's a joy killer. Weariness is a joy killer. Paul tells us in the New Testament, don't grow weary in well-doing. He's trying to say, don't, don't let what you're doing become so over, over cumbersome that, that it be, causes weariness. What we do for the Lord should be joyful. It should be out of an attitude of joy and love for one another. But when what you're doing is no longer joyful, what you're doing is motivated by something other than the love of God and love of other people, it takes you into the weary worker category. And that's not John 10, 10 abundant life either. That's not the life God intended for us to experience. The weary worker works in search of joy, not because of it. But those who are frustrated and they don't choose to do more, they don't try to pack on works to kind of work themselves out of the frustration, they try to dig into maybe who they are, or their knowledge of God, who God is. And so they work on this horizontal axis on the being and they go from the frustrated believer to the heartless hypocrite. The heartless hypocrite isn't ideal either. This is the hearing but not doing crowd. James, in his book, he says, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers also. If, if all you're doing is hearing and listening and learning, but you're not applying that to your life, it is it, it's for no use. It's vain. Uh, a pastor named Perry Noble said one time that, that, that information plus application equals transformation. 
What if you're just listening and you're growing in your knowledge base, but you're not applying that, then it's not doing anything for your life. It's not changing your heart. And this is that sanctification process that we begin when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes in and begins to work in us to transform us from hearts of flesh or hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and to turn us into people that honor and mirror Jesus Christ. But the heartless hypocrite, they don't do that. They, they uh, are the hearing but not doing crowd. They have energy for lots of spiritual activity, but their heart is not changing in the process. So nothing ends up really different. They have spiritual participation, but their spiritual participation really is vain spiritual repetition. Nothing is changing in their heart. Nothing is changing in their daily life except a growing self-righteousness. And that's a problem. And the problem with this spot the heartless hypocrite, is that it gives the Christian the illusion of spirituality. It gives the illusion. You're involved in all these spiritual things, but nothing's really changing. This this spot is also a place that's ripe with comfort. I mean, it's comfortable. Man, I come in, I look like a Jesus follower, I know the verses, I can quote the scripture, and I can go back home the very same as I walked in. It promotes pride in the heart of the believer, making them most ineffective for the kingdom of God because they don't feel any need to change anything or not uh, motivated to enter into repentance. This gives the heartless hypocrite a false sense of joy, almost joy really, but it's not true joy that satisfies the soul because they're not really experiencing God. They might be learning about God, but they're not experiencing God and growing in the relationship with God. See, growing in the Lord takes understanding Understanding requires both knowledge and experience. And since the heartless hypocrite is not experiencing the Lord, they can't be growing in the Lord. And the goal for every follower of Jesus, the goal for every believer, isn't to stay stuck as a frustrated believer or to stay stuck as the weary worker or the heartless hypocrite. It's to go uh, along the being and doing axis simultaneously, moving up into the top right-hand corner into the quadrant of the joyful follower of Jesus Christ. This is where being and doing work in perfect harmony. This is where God will not only be doing incredible things through you, but God will also be doing incredible things in you. This is where the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 begin to overflow from your life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, tenderness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, kindness, all the things that are produced by the Holy Spirit, including joy, will be produced in your life naturally. It'll overflow from your life naturally when you're in this sweet spot. Jeff Spadafora calls this, when you enter into the quadrant of the joyful follower, the place where you receive a supernatural disposition or a holy personality. And that's what I call a joy set. An overflowing joy that flourishes regardless of circumstances. So the question is, how, if we're stuck in one of these other three quadrants, these negative places, can we attempt to break out or pursue to become a joyful follower of Jesus Christ? Because I think we'd all agree, we want to be joyful followers of Jesus Christ. So if we're stuck in one of these three negative quadrants, the question is, how do we begin to move along that uh, proper axis? And I believe Paul here in Philippians chapter 1 gives us some great insight to discover how we can begin to move in the right direction. We're going to read this again, Philippians chapter 1, except we're going to begin in verse 9. Here's what Paul says. He says, I pray 
that your love will overflow more and more, that you will keep on growing in knowledge and in understanding. For I want you, here's the key verse. It says, I want you to understand what really matters. Somebody say, what really matters today? He says, I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. So you may always be filled with the fruit. There it is. Love, joy, peace, long suffering, tenderness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against there such there is no law, right? This is what he's talking about. The fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. The title of this message is simply, What Really Matters. And some significant things that Paul is revealing in this passage, what he's really praying for, for the Philippian church in this passage, the first thing is that, that their love will overflow more and more and more and more. Right? Who here doesn't know that for the Christian, love is the ultimate? Love is the ultimate. Right? Jesus said the two most important commandments are to love God with all of you, all of you. Um, what, uh, there's a movie called um, How to Train Your Dragon. Anybody seen that movie, How to Train Your Dragon? Right? The, my favorite part in that movie is when uh, Hiccup is talking to his father, and, and his father looks at him and is like, you know, Hiccup, I just wish you were a little less like this and a little more you know, you know, macho or something to that effect. And Hiccup responds, you just motioned to all of me. You know, he's like, he's like, this part of you is not okay. And he's like, that's like all of me. So you're basically saying, I'm not, I'm, I'm not okay. And I just thought that was hilarious. And uh, so I tend to do that to encourage my kids every once in a while. Can you just change this, please? You know, not, not really, but maybe in my mind. Um, but, uh, but this is what God, Jesus is saying. He's like, love God with all of you, heart, soul, mind, strength, everything that makes up you. Love God with that and actually grow in that. Do it more and more and more. And then he says the second command is equal to it. It is love others the way you love yourself. The more we love God, the more we will love what God loves. And while we were yet sinners, God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The more we love God, the more we will love what he loves. And who does God love? He loves you. He loves me. He loves people. He gave up his life through Jesus Christ for us. Love is the ultimate. God does not just want our love for him to grow, but our love for one another to grow. The second thing he prays for is that you would grow in your knowledge and in your understanding. And we understand what knowledge is. That's just the accumulation of facts. We go to school to get knowledge. We, we, we read books to get knowledge. But knowledge isn't the end. Knowledge is what the heartless hypocrite is content with. Knowledge isn't the end. The other part of that is understanding. And the definition of understanding in, in the Greek language that Paul is using to write to the church of Philippi, that word understanding means perception, or not only by the senses, but by the intellect, cognition, discernment, or moral discernment in ethical matters. And so what Paul is, is praying for, to God for this church, what he's writing to this church is that I pray that you grow in knowledge and understanding. Paul is saying, look, I want you to grow in knowledge of the truth of God, but then I want you to perceive, to discern, to fully comprehend and apply to your life that same truth. 
In other words, I don't want you just to know things about God. I want you to be able to do things with what you know. I want you to understand what really matters. Think about this. If there are some things that really matter, isn't it logical to assume that there are some things that don't really matter? Or maybe some things that just kind of matter? See, part of our problem today is that we get so distracted with what I believe the Bible would call things that just don't really matter. Or maybe just kind of matter. We get distracted and absorbed and consumed with things that don't really matter at all in light of eternity. When you think of where you're going to spend all of eternity, I don't think it matters who just posted on Pinterest and what they're doing in their bathroom. And on light of eternity, there are things that we get obsessed with that don't matter, like what Marvel movie's coming out this weekend. There are things that don't really matter in light of eternity. And so the question is, is how do we know if what we're striving for in our lives, in our marriage, in our relationships, what we're striving for, if it really matters, or in reality, it just kind of matters or doesn't matter at all? How do we know that whether or not I'm investing my energy and resources into something that will last for eternity or maybe something that will just fade away. How do we know what really matters? We know by growing in our knowledge and in our understanding. And he says, by doing this, by growing in your knowledge and understanding, a few things are going to happen. You're going to live pure and blameless lives. I like that part. Forget this sin garbage. Pure and blameless. Let's go there. He says, you're going to be filled with the fruit of your salvation. That means God's going to overflow in my life. Yes, God, let's, let's do this. And then he says, then you're going to give glory to God, which is the ultimate for every child of God, is that their lives will reflect and give glory to the Lord. By growing in knowledge and understanding, by discovering what really matters, you're going to be able to look at your life and make the necessary shift. Somebody said, say, make a shift. You're going to be able to make a shift in your life to realign your visions, your dreams, your goals, your plans, your everyday, day-to-day into the very will of God. And you'll begin to live a pure and a blameless life. You'll begin to overflow with the fruit of your salvation and you will ultimately give God glory with all you are because you will be a joyful follower with a joy set. And this just doesn't happen by osmosis, right? You can't just sit next to a joyful person and just become joyful. In order to become a joyful follower of Jesus Christ, it's going to take some effort. It takes intentional investment and intentional personal time to walk in this path. You see, one of the common three, uh, the common things that these three negative quadrants on the, the joy model really have in common, the three things, the weary worker, the the um, heartless hypocrite and the frustrated believer, the three things that they have in common or what they have in common isn't really a lack of participation in spiritual things. Really, it's busyness in unfruitful pursuits. It's busyness in unfruitful pursuits. It's, it's involvement in obsession with things that don't really matter. And again, like I said, our lives today are marked by busyness and white noise. All right, humor me now. Everyone just start going like this in front of your face and try to pay attention to what I'm saying, right? Keep going like this, right? There's always something happening in our lives 
There's always something going on to distract us, to keep us from focusing on what's right. There's family responsibilities like kids' sports, right? There's, there's pressures at work. There are, what, what else? There's laundry. There's housework that we haven't been able to catch up on. There's drama on Facebook, social media, all these things. See, some of you quit because you're like, man, that's distracting, <laughs> Right? It's distracting. It's annoying. I can't stand that, right? But this is what happens with all of this stuff. We, we get filled up uh, with all these things. We have every uh, night of the week is dedicated to running kids to and fro. It's work. It's, it's responsibility. It's, it's frivolous things. You know, our family just helped our daughter, London, participate in the school science fair, and it was cool that she was able to do that. She got second place, so I'm really proud of her uh, for doing that. But science fairs for kids is really homework for parents. And so if you've not participated in one, I'm just going to throw that out there. When your kid says, I wanted to do the science fair, you're really committing several nights of the week, if not a couple of weeks, to make this thing happen. So that was another obligation because we said, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll do this with you, that we're going to have to do that to, to uh, fulfill that in the week and find time to, to make that happen. But see, at the end of the day, when we finally find a couple spare moments to ourselves, we are exhausted because we're turned every different direction. And all we want to do at the end of the day is numb ourselves to that stress, that pain, that pressure, the, the, the distraction, the, the tension of being pulled in every direction. And it leaves us to, to, to consume ourselves with stuff that will just take that away because we're living on survival mode each and every day. It's just survival mode. How do, I, how do I just numb it for a second because tomorrow it's going to be overwhelming just as the day before? And it feels like we never have enough time in the day just to sit and think, to process information. There's always something going on. There's always something on television, always something dinging the phone. There's always something happening, and we can't just sit and think. And it, even when we get an opportunity to do that, because of how busy our lives are, because of all the white noise in our lives, the silence is so uncomfortable that while we're sitting and thinking, we feel like, man, I really feel like I have something to do. I need to quit this and get on to something else. And there's a tension there. We can't even just relax or rest. There's an anxiety that happens. But yet, if we're going to discover what really matters, if we're going to make a shift from what might be good to something that could be great, then we need to do something and that is we need to create some margin in our lives. Somebody say margin. Margin, as I was looking uh, this word up, and it really liked the first part of the definition, it says margin is the part of a page or a sheet outside the main body of printed written matter. So essentially, if you think of a document, margin is the empty space on the outside. See, if you don't have proper margin on a document, those words can run off the page and you can be missing vital information. And the same is true with a picture. If you do not have the proper margin, you can miss vital details and not really understand what you are supposed to see or what you're supposed to be looking at. And so we could look at something kind of like this. This is a picture without proper margin. And I printed it off here so I could be like Vanna White this morning. But here's a picture like this. It doesn't have proper margin. The first thing I think of is, who is that guy? It kind of looks like it could be Jesus, but it also looks like maybe it's Charles Manson. You know, like crazy guy that killed a bunch of people? I think it's kind of Charles Manson. And then what's he doing with his hand? Is his hand up saying, like, stop, like he's going to be confrontational? Is 
He's like pointing like a gun, like he wants to kill me, or is he saying, look at the booger I just picked out of my nose? Right? We don't know, right? We don't know what, what the image is supposed to be because we don't have the proper margins. We can't see what the creator of this image wanted us to see. And the same is true for the child of God. When we don't have proper margin in our lives, we might miss out on the very story that God has intended to be at the center of our lives, to see the very thing that God wants us to be aware of, to see the very thing that God wants uh, to be our main focus. But you see, when you have a picture that does have margin, go to the next one, it becomes a little clearer. The story becomes a little clearer. You no longer have to wonder about the details or wonder what the, uh, the meaning of the picture is. You no longer have to wonder what the purpose of life is or, or maybe what I'm missing. You get the full story. And you see, God knew us so well. He knew that as people, we have a tendency to run off the margin, to fill our lives up so full, to be so busy, to fill it with so much white noise that we would not have margin. And so God built margin into the fabric of creation. In the beginning, there was God. And God created in six days. And what did God do on the seventh? All the Sunday school kids say? He rested. The infinite God with infinite power for all eternity took a break. Why? It's because he needed to? No. It's because he wanted to look at and think about and meditate on everything he created. On day one, it was good. On day two, it was good. On day three, it was good. On day four, it was good. On day five, it was good. On day six, it was kind of good because man kind of sucks. So he created woman and then together man and woman made it good. And God wanted to think of everything he created and all that he had planned. God knew that we needed margin in our lives, and so he built it into the fabric of creation. And when the the nation of Israel comes on the scene and God is relaying to Moses all of his commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, God gives Israel a command, but this really is, is before the law. This is just a confirmation of what God had already intended for his people. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, God tells Moses, remember to observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Keep it set apart. Why did he say remember? Because we're going to forget. We're going to forget to build margin in our lives. We're going to work and work and work and work and pursue and pursue and seek and seek and fill and fill. And we're going to forget that God said you need to take a rest. You need margin in your life. In Deuteronomy 5.14, Jesus, or God, clarifies the command. He says, on the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. And on that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and your daughters, your male and your female servants, your oxen and donkeys and other livestock, any foreigners living among you, all your male and female servants must rest as you do. This was a big deal. The rest was so important. Even in Exodus chapter 35, verse 3, God tells the nation, he says, you must not even even light a fire in any of your homes on the Sabbath day. We're like, you can't even, like, it's like 50 degrees in here, and you're going to tell me I can't tell my wife I can't turn up that heat? You better be crazy, God, crazy, right? You can't even light a fire to heat your homes on the Sabbath day. 
And I've heard stories of even Orthodox Jews, even today, won't turn the light switches on in their house for fear of breaking this command. That the point of rest was so intrinsic in their culture, and it was woven into the fabric of creation. And as we go now, we're in the church age, and we're the church of Jesus Christ, and I don't know, that was law, and we're looking at the age of grace, and we're like, yeah, I know it's important to take a day of rest, and our day of rest is Sunday, it's the Lord's day, we go to church. But for Christians in this day and age, we don't take a day of rest, we choose a day of catch up. Right? I know many of you after church today, you're going to go eat, and then you're going to go fulfill all the things you couldn't get to the rest of the week. You've got laundry, you've got housework, you know, whether it's weeding something or, or, or something, you know, cleaning out a room. There's all this work you've already prepared and planned for today. And we do this. We don't allow any margin in our lives. And I know somebody will say, well, that was law. We, we don't follow the laws anymore. I understand that. But that's not the purpose of this command. Exodus 16, verse 29 God clarifies to the nation of Israel. He says this, they must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's what? Gift to you. Remember the Sabbath is the command. The Sabbath itself is a gift. And look what he says. That is why he gives you a two-day supply on the sixth day so there will be enough for two days. On the Sabbath day, you must each stay in your place. Do not go out and pick up food on the seventh day. He's like, I know resting is kind of a hard thing for you to think about on a day, so I'm going to give you double your blessing on the sixth day so you have enough to rest on the seventh. I'm going to take care of you. I got you. I got you. Look what Jesus says in Mark 2, 27. It says, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Jesus is speaking here uh, to these people that were questioning why his disciples were, were washing their hands or picking up, you know, picking corn off the stalks to get something to eat. They're like, man, your guys are working on the Sabbath. What gives, Christ? And Jesus said the Sabbath wasn't made, or man wasn't made to meet the needs of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made the need, to meet the needs of the people. Jesus said, we're not made for the Sabbath. That's law. If we were made for the Sabbath, this would be a law that was intrinsic to who we are. We'd have to obey it. And if we didn't, we'd be a sinner and and this, that, and the other. But that's not what God intended for the Sabbath. He said the Sabbath was made for us. That's a gift. That's a gift. What gift do you know is bad for the receiver? Is there a gift that you would give that is intended to be bad for the receiver? No, a gift is always given to bless, to bring light, to bring love, to show appreciation. Here God is saying this command is a gift. Jesus is saying this Sabbath is a gift. God is saying I've created margin in your life as a gift for you. Not to scoff at, not to ignore, but to bless. Even the ground was given a Sabbath. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 4, look what God commands the people. He says, During the seventh year, the land must have a Sabbath year of complete rest. It is the Lord's Sabbath. Do not plant your fields or prune your vineyards during that year. God even commanded that the ground get a break. That there was a margin created even for the ground, that it would have a time of rest and were reprieved from all of its labor, from all the cultivation that mankind was, was doing to produce crops and fruit and, and bring wealth, that the land would get a break. And I'm just thinking, you know, what would happen today if God came down and said, okay, y'all, you can work for six years, 
But on the seventh year, you got to not do any work. I mean, I'm thinking, could my, I set up my budget in such a way that by year seven, I could take a whole year off. I'm like, there is no way. I'm looking week to week, like, oh, I got enough to pay my bills this month. Whew, I'm doing good, right? It's it, it just like, man, I don't know what was going through God's mind saying you could take a whole year off. Well, what was going through the mind? I'm thinking there'd be no way. How are we going to survive? How are we going to make it? What, I, I can work. What, what's going to happen after year six? If I take a year off, my job is going to fire me. I'm going to have to find a new job. And what kind of retirement am I going to have if every six years I'm getting new employment? This is crazy. Like, what, what's wrong with you, God? Don't you know the way the world works? But God, in his infinite wisdom, saw the concern, knew what we would say, knew what the people were going to say. In Leviticus chapter 25, 20 through 22, here's what he says. He says, but you might ask, what will we eat during the seventh year, since we're not allowed to plant or harvest crops that year? Be assured that I will send my blessing for you in the sixth year, so the land will produce a crop large enough for three years. When you plant your fields in the eighth year, you will still be eating from the large crop of the sixth year. In fact, you will still be eating from that large crop when the new crop is harvested in the ninth year. God says, listen, this is a matter of faith. You got to trust me on this. But if you trust me, the blessing is going to come. I've got a blessing for you that when year six happens and you're facing that time off, you trust me. I'm going to give you such a blessing. You're not going to have enough for the seventh year. You're not just going to have enough for the eighth year, but you're going to still be eating on the blessing from the sixth year up into the ninth year. I'm going to bless you abundantly more than you could imagine. And I kind of think Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have life. What, church? More abundantly. The abundance comes from the faith that is centered around the rest. And I'm not saying that we have to take every seventh year off of work and, and that this applies to us in the church age, but I believe the principle of margin still stands. God is saying, church, if you trust me, if you believe that what I say is true, if you believe that my intentions are good and that I am a good and faithful God and you do things my way because my way is always the right way, you will always be better for it. And I can understand in our day and age, being worried about not working for a year, but you know what? We say the very same thing is about work, not working for a day. Oh man, how am I going to survive if I don't work over 40 hours this week? Man, how am I going to survive if I don't work every day? I got bills to pay, y'all. I got kids that need stuff. How am I going to survive if I take time off? How is my project at school or at work going to get done if I, if I take that break, if I put margin into my life? How am I going to get in, you know, all my, my busyness if I take that break? How am I going to survive if I slow down and I choose to stop involving myself in certain things that I feel like are just necessary for my life in order to have this margin in my life? See, margin is a matter of faith. It's God is saying, what, you want to burn out? You want to be the frustrated believer? You want to be the weary worker? You want to constantly be beating your head against the wall, wondering what's wrong with your life? Okay, keep going like you're going. But if you want the blessing to come, you will build margin in your life. Psalm 46, verse 10 is a famous verse. It says, be still and know that I, say it, church, am God. Be still and know that I am God. How are you supposed to know that he's God, that he's provision, 
that he is protector, that he is healer, that he is comforter, that he is savior, that he is Messiah, that he's your closest friend, that he will not leave you or forsake you, that he'll get you through, he'll give you strength. How are you supposed to know that he is God if you're never still? You're frantic in the world. All the anxiety of your problems, every doctor visit, every next thing, and there's no stillness. There's no margin to be still and know that he is God. You see, what margin does, what a Sabbath rest unto the Lord does, is it allows you to refocus your life, to fit your life back into the bigger picture of God's story. Today, church, we need a Sabbath. We need to create margin in our life, not to become lazy, The Sabbath wasn't just to be lazy. It was to be in communion with God. We need the Sabbath. We need to make margin in our life, this beneficial thing, so that we can begin producing a truly spirit and joy-filled life. Let me give you a practical tool. If you step out in faith, you begin saying, God, you know what? I see how busy my life is. I see how crazy it is. I see that my anxiety is through the roof because I've just not built margin in. I don't have that quality time. I don't have a day where I just spend in worship and in prayer and and, in communing with brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't have this time where I'm really just focused on connecting with you. If you step out on faith this week and say, I'm going to begin building margin in my life. I'm going to begin getting alone with God. Then when you're alone with God, and you're done reading, you're done praying, I'm going to give you a little tool, a practical tool you can use to really begin to refocus and reshift your life. When you're alone with God, I want you to think of a word. It's the word raid. When you're alone with God, I want you to raid your life. And raid stands for this. The letter R stands for reflect. When you're alone with God and you're being still before the Lord, you're seeking the Lord you need to reflect. Reflect on the state of your life up until that point. Reflect, am I where I'm supposed to be? Am I investing my life into what is good or what is best? Am I filling my life with too much busyness? Am I in the proper place? Am I in the proper ministry? Am I making wise decisions? What what is the state of my life? Reflect on your life. Reflect on your marriage. Reflect on your relationships, your friendships. Reflect and see if you're being productive or counterproductive in your life. Then two is the letter A, and that is analyze. Analyze where your heart is today. Am I growing in the knowledge and understanding? Am I truly hungry for God? Do I want to go deeper for the Lord, or am I more hungry for what the world has to offer? Am I more pursuing worldly gain or heavenly gain? Am I more interested in the things of the world or the things of God? Analyze where your heart is. The letter I is this, investigate. Investigate your true purpose and your true calling. We talked about last week of how many of us just flounder because we've yet to realize the true calling God's placed in our lives. God's called us all to be salt and light. He's called us all to be ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ into all the world, preaching the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're all called as one unified church to be the lamppost and the light to the world. The question is, how are you going to live that out? He's got a call in your life. There are works he's planned for you before the foundation of the world. Do you know what that is? And if so, are you pursuing that? 
Ask yourself, as you investigate your true purpose and calling, are you making the decisions today that will help you fulfill God's purposes tomorrow? Investigate. And then D, as you got a dream. You got a dream. The Bible says, without vision, the people perish. Without a vision, people perish. When you're meditating on God's word, when you're thinking about your life, you're analyzing your heart, you're investigating your calling, then you need to begin to dream about the joy that is to come. I remember when we started Vertical Life Church, I remember when my wife and I knelt down on the couch in our, in our house and began to pray. And the, the reality that this was going to happen began to really sink in and what this ministry might be like. And then we started meeting on Sunday nights with a Bible study and just seeing glimpses of what God might want to do. I began to dream dream, and that's kind of my thing. I'm a creative mind where I see big pictures, and, and so I began to dream of what God was going to do, and just the thought of what God could do, seeing this place filled, seeing countless people raise their hands, accepting Christ as Lord and Savior, seeing countless people go through the waters of baptism, seeing people delivered and healed, and see the gifts of the Spirit flow out of this place, and seeing uh, the whole community transformed because of the gospel, the point or the, the idea that that could happen in us and through us just to talk about joy, talk about excitement, talk about uh, this, this effervescent uh, just, just drive and motivation to see that happen. Dreaming about what God wants to do in your life is a way to generate joy in the journey, especially as you're pursuing his calling. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the scripture says this. It says, because of the joy awaiting him, talking about Christ, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Because of the joy awaiting him, Jesus, as he's going through the trial, as he's going through the beatings, as he's hanging on the cross, says he endured that. He disregarded the shame. Why? Because he knew what was coming. He saw you, he saw me, he saw all of eternity. He saw the church uh, as a spotless bride without any spot or wrinkle at the marriage supper, the lamb going into glory. He knew what God had prepared for him and what was coming on the other side. And that joy sustained him, motivated him, and encouraged him to go through what he had to go through. Think about what that means about the power of dreams and visions as you are dreaming about God's call on your life, as you're dreaming about the blessings he has in store, as you're pursuing the very thing he's called you to do. All through the Lord's ministry, Jesus was not just seen observing the Sabbath, but he continually broke away from the crowds, getting alone with God to break away from the white noise and from the busyness of ministry in his life. He continually separated himself to get alone with the Lord. And I can only imagine that each and every time he did that, he, as part of his recharging process, started dreaming about that future joy, that future glory. So if you and I want to move toward being a joyful follower in the joy model, if we want to experience more joy in life, it doesn't come through more busyness. If we want to have a joy set, if we want to have a life that is just overflowing with abundant joy, then we need to discover what really matters. And the way to do that is to take time every week, every day, to get alone with God and raid our lives. To create margin, to reflect on your life, 
to analyze your heart, to investigate your purpose and dream about the joy to come. And when we make the necessary shift away from what is pulling you away from what God called you to be toward what God called you to do, you'll begin to experience his everlasting joy. In this place today, are you the frustrated believer? If you're honest with yourself, would you say you're the frustrated believer? Well, then you need to discover what really matters. Are you the weary worker? You need to discover what really matters. Are you the heartless hypocrite? You need to discover what really matters. And how do you do that? It's by building margin and rating your life and realigning yourself with God's call. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your message. I thank you for your word. I thank you how even in my own life, there are times where I just felt like I wasn't moving anywhere. I wasn't going forward. There are times where I felt stale and stagnant. There are times where I felt joyless. And I look back on my life and I see how I had no margin. I would run to the things of this world. I would run to things that didn't really satisfy in an effort to try to satisfy the only place in my life that can be satisfied by you. And it wasn't until I stopped filling my mind with busyness and white noise and, and I was building margin where I would, I would feel that tension and pressure. I would run to you rather than running to things in this life, God, that I really began to sense the joy of the Lord begin to rise back up in my heart. And I just pray for the church today. I pray for everyone here. Those who are, who are facing struggles, who are facing trials and challenges and, and obstacles. Those who are in a hard place right now. I pray, God, that they would begin to invest in their relationship with you in a way they never had before. They'd begin that journey of discovering what really matters, of growing in their knowledge and in their understanding. I pray, Lord, that they would begin building margin into their life and reaping the benefits of the blessing that they'd realize that they have more strength and more energy that they need by taking that time out to set aside to, to commune with you and, and to focus on their relationship, God, that they'll begin to realize that they had all the time that they ever needed all the other times of the week. God, that your blessings would begin to flow, that we would take your word seriously. Like, like the testimonies before, we would take you at your word. We would trust in your good name, God, and that we would rise up as your holy church filled with abundant life, centered on our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God, I pray for us now as, as we go into the world that you, O oh Lord, would be glorified in us, that you bind us together with supernatural unity and that we would be known as a people with overflowing and abundant joy. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.